0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: And I'm Joyce Vance.
0: How are you, Joyce?
1: I'm good, Preet. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. There's a lot to cover, as always. Uh, We were recording this as usual on Tuesday morning. It's August 2nd. I guess it's the last month of the summer. And I tweeted last night, good riddance, without any context or detail, and some people didn't know what I was talking about until they saw the news.
1: Oh, it was clear. It was very clear and a very appropriate
0: tweet. And as President Biden announced in an address to the nation, I'm an al-Zawahiri, is no more, taken out by CIA drones, head of al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden was killed, had a lot to do with, some people think, the mastermind of 9-11, Hence, good riddance.
1: Really good riddance and and really interesting timing. Although I think it's important to say that the CIA and and the U.S. government writ large times these sorts of strikes based on, really based on opportunity and and the safety of the operation. But it was very interesting that this happened while the former president was uh, entertaining the Saudis and and hosting a a golf tournament for them.
0: And while the current president is having his close-in-time second bout of COVID, successful COVID week for him.
1: Will they not let that man get some rest? I understand the need (laughs) for politicians to look able no matter what. But, you know, for for those of us like me who are still really tired a couple weeks out from COVID, I would like to see Joe Biden commit to 72 hours of rest because I
0: feel like it would
1: enable me to do the same
0: thing. Please let him wear his pajamas. I know.
1: But you know, you've got to you got to love the videos he's been doing and the pictures with Commander his German shepherd. We have a very firm rule in our house. We never vote for candidates who don't love dogs, which for us meant that you know, the election in 2016 was really a bright line, right? Because Donald Trump has never seen a dog that he actually liked. And so seeing Joe Biden with Commander just melts my heart.
0: Oh, so that's the reason you didn't support Trump. It was the dog. Or the you lack know of dog.
1: You, I'm a one-issue voter. <laughs> okay.
0: So I guess today it's basically, putting Al-Zawahiri aside, it's all things January 6th, and there's two components to that, as there have been for a long time. One recently more active than it has been. So the one component is what is DOJ doing, and the other component is what is Congress doing. This week, I think, almost uniquely, we're going to start with DOJ. What do you think of that?
1: You know, it is unique. But but before we do, and I know this will be one of our themes undoubtedly, a lot of stuff happened last week. And it was a good week, I think, for people who were beginning to lose faith in the Justice Department. They heard the Attorney General reaffirm his commitment to bringing all of those who are criminally responsible to justice. But I think we need to talk realistically about All of the work that has to be done and all of the different things that have to come to fruition to make prosecution of the people at the top of of any conspiracy, let alone this one, a possibility. It's not automatic.
0: No, in fact, you know, there's something that we don't talk about explicitly because a lot of people have made up their minds. There's a judge who said people keep quoting this judge who said there's probable cause to believe that people up to and including the former president have likely committed a violation of more than one federal statute obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Remember, even that judge is saying there's probable cause based on the information that he has and the documents that he has seen and that many of us have also seen, that doesn't mean there's a criminal case to be brought. And let me ask you the question. Do you think that the Department of Justice, I mean, I think the answer to this is obvious, but it's worth stating explicitly Do you think the Department of Justice has made up its mind in any way, shape or form about the chargeability of Donald Trump?
1: No, it absolutely hasn't because all of the evidence isn't in yet. And look, it's important to understand prosecutors are people, too, and they can, for personal reasons or or just for reasons as patriots, want to see Donald Trump prosecuted. That doesn't mean that they're going to give the ghost signal unless all of the evidence is in place.
0: Every case has to go through various phases. I haven't mentioned my book in a while. I wrote, I wrote a book called Doing Justice.
1: I like your book. And I
0: thank you. And, and I teach a class at NYU Law School that, that tracks basically the arc of the book. And as I said forth there, and as prosecutors know, there are distinct phases of a matter. The first phase is the investigative phase. That is completely distinct and separate from the charging phase. And you can't make your decision about whether or not to bring an indictment against one or more people on one or more counts until you completed the investigation. And it is sometimes true that where there's smoke, there's not enough fire, and you do your investigation, and you don't think there's enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt with respect to one or more people or with respect to one or more counts, and then you don't bring the case. Sometimes, and we can talk about this in a few minutes, there is sufficient evidence to possibly get a conviction— but depending on how likely that is and what the other circumstances are and the stakes, prosecutors can sometimes reasonably decide not to bring the case, even though it's arguable that there's enough evidence, perhaps, to get a conviction. We can talk about those probabilities and what the relevance of those probabilities are also, if if you want. And then there are some times where there's sufficient evidence to get a conviction. And for other reasons of fairness, you don't bring the case. And You know, in that bucket, there are some people, even on the Democratic side, who are very worried that to bring a criminal case against Donald Trump, even if it's justified and supportable, would be a bad precedent. I don't happen to agree with those people, but there are these other considerations. But before you can get to the charging you got to do the investigation.
1: You know, absolutely. And I'd add one final consideration to your bucket. This is why trial lawyers hate appellate lawyers, by the way. I spent part of my career in the U.S. Attorney's Office after being a line prosecutor working in our appellate division And every once in a while, the pesky appellate lawyers swoop in and say, you know, there's a significant legal issue. You might get a conviction, but you're going to lose on appeal because, whatever the legal reason is, here we've heard folks talk about the First Amendment as a defense. I think that'll have to be litigated, but ultimately, I don't think that that stands in the way of a prosecution if there's evidence here. But I would expect the Solicitor General's office to be fully engaged, testing the sorts of legal impediments that could block certain sorts of charges in a case like this.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about timing for a moment. And as we talk about timing, we can talk about the substance of the facts and what evidence needs to be adduced. They are not anywhere close to completing an investigation of Trump and the people around him. And we know that how? We know that because... The committee has interviewed 1,000 people. The DOJ has put two or more people into the grand jury. We know the DOJ is not gonna rely only on what the committee does because they've already shown themselves to need the testimony of at least two high-level officials who work for Mike Pence, his former chief counsel, and his former chief of staff. Do they need to interview all 1,000? I'm curious what you think about that. Do they need to interview many, many, many of them? Yes. We also have learned that there is a provisional agreement, I think, Between the committee and DOJ, for the committee to turn over 20 transcripts of testimony of witnesses that they have talked to. That's 20 out of a thousand. So that process is only just beginning to get underway. And as you and I have said many times, there's lots of substantive and ethical and prudential reasons why DOJ has to talk to all these people themselves, not just rely on what the committee did, not because the committee didn't do a great and thorough job, but they have different purposes. And The Department of Justice has to do a lot more things and has to test through internal cross-examination the veracity of the witnesses and corroborate them. We're talking many, many months. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And many, many prosecutor and agent bodies, which I think means one of the themes of the podcast is how much ends up on the plate of the Deputy Attorney General, our good friend Lisa Monaco. I think here she's going to have to figure out resource-wise what this looks like. And that might mean bringing in some of the most experienced senior folks from across the country and just saying, this case is the priority. And, you know, some of the cases at the bottom of the food chain in your office. And that's not to say that any cases are unimportant because they all matter. But you have to be realistic about what you can do with the resources that you have. And sometimes that means saying, we're going to let certain sorts of cases be handled by, for instance, our, our state DA counterparts. But I think DOJ will have to make those choices to put together a team that can move forward with this quickly. Because, you know, Preet, something really stuck out at me on this timeline of items that we learned about in reporting last week. Also something that you and I have talked about, which is this theme of where was DOJ in 2021 And and what jumped out at me in the reporting was the fact that the Justice Department in April, in April of this year, received phone records of key officials and aides in the Trump administration, including Mark Meadows. I don't understand why that only happened in April of 2022. If you were running a stealth investigation all along Those records would have probably been some of the first things that you would have accessed back in 2021. To me, that's a red flag that this is still early times for DOJ and that they have a lot of work left in front of them.
0: I think that's right. And by the way, as you and I were discussing before we pressed the record button, there are other reasons why DOJ needs to be in a position to have reviewed all the transcripts Of all the testimony given by the thousand witnesses before the committee, not just to see what evidence they can use and corroborate and put forward in their own potential case against Trump and others, but also arguably they have an obligation to look at all that other evidence because it's in their capacity to obtain, to make sure there's nothing that's exculpatory with respect to anyone they may charge, to be in a position to turn that over to any defendants that they may charge fair
1: fair and it's another one of those pesky appellate lawyer points but DOJ is already under the gun with the courts there was a failed prosecution i think during the bush administration of Ted Stevens an Alaska senator there were some really serious concerns about discovery and that led to a uh, nationwide discovery reform in the US attorney's office early during our tenure as united states attorneys Here's how that plays out in a setting like this. The government has to be scrupulous about assessing everything that a court might decide it had access to. You know, not what just DOJ looks at and says, okay, we've only got these 20 interviews. This is all we're going to review. They have to think about how a court might view what they possessed. And a court might say, you had access to all of this stuff. You had an obligation to turn over anything that what prosecutors call Brady, exculpatory information, information that might make it easier for a defendant to establish that he or she isn't guilty. And that isn't viewed, you know, as prosecutors sit here today getting ready to indict a case, they review stuff and they decide what looks today like it might be exculpatory. When courts evaluate that, they look backwards. They're at the end of a trial. The defendant presumably has been convicted. There's an appeal. And now with all the knowledge of what took place in the trial and afterwards, judges are evaluating the government's conduct before everything got started. So you can understand why prosecutors have to take this extremely seriously. Again, this is something that you have to devote good resources to, and it takes a lot of time to do it right. And if you don't do it right, you can lose your conviction on appeal.
0: Yeah. And the other thing, we've alluded to this before in connection with impeachment proceedings, but it also is true with respect to the 1-6 committee's work, which, again, I think should be applauded, has been done thoroughly and admirably. But whatever you say about it, it is not a criminal trial. It is a congressional hearing. And as far as congressional hearings go, like every congressional hearing, it's kind of loosey-goosey in terms of what goes and what doesn't go. It doesn't have to be as thorough. As critics have pointed out, for what it's worth, there's no cross-examination. A lot of what people have criticized as hearsay is not, in fact, hearsay under the federal rules of evidence. But some of it is, depending on the circumstances and if a proper exception doesn't apply, hearsay evidence is not admissible at a federal criminal trial. And there are all sorts of other niceties of what can be brought up in court, what cannot, the way you can ask questions. Leading questions are not permitted. I've seen leading questions at the hearing. So it's not just that they have to meet a high bar of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They have to do so by adhering to very, very stringent rules of evidence, none of which, none of which have applied to these hearings.
1: I think the cross-examination point is a really good one. You know, something that happens, and I'm sure you've done this with witnesses before you've put them on the stand in a criminal trial, sometimes you have to remind them that the defendant knows a lot about their conduct. And if there's stuff that the defendant knows that they haven't shared with the prosecution, that's probably the kind of thing that they will be cross-examined about vigorously. And so that's not to suggest that anyone has done anything wrong, but If folks are on trial for their lives, and if you have a witness, say a Cassidy Hutchinson on the witness stand, those defendants are going to know a lot about her conduct in the White House. We don't know if there might be arguments that they can put forward that would tend to harm her credibility. Um, Perhaps she would come out the way she did in the committee hearings as this really important voice that was willing to tell the truth. But there is risk, and that's something that DOJ has to evaluate, is what's that litigation risk involved with these witnesses?
0: Look, with respect to Cassidy Hutchinson, as you just mentioned, there's all sorts of things you can cross-examine her on. I'm not saying at the end of the day, it, it carries the trial for the defendant, if there is a trial, but you take shots and you have hits. Remember that most criminal trials, federal and state, most criminal trials end in a conviction. And every single one of those trials the prosecution puts on witnesses in its affirmative case. And in every single one of those trials, virtually every witness, not always, I've seen people waive cross-examination of witnesses, particularly when they're victim witnesses, but in virtually every instance, in every trial in the United States of America, when a government witness testifies, a defense lawyer with varying degrees of competence cross-examines that witness. And sometimes they don't lay a glove on the witness and sometimes they destroy the witness, but often it's somewhere in between and they make certain points that they can then weave into their summation with respect to other cross-examinations as well. And with respect to Cassidy Hutchinson, there has been reporting, I believe, that on other occasions, she has mocked the committee. She has made disparaging remarks about the committee. She said other things that were favorable about the president. Can that be harmonized? And can that be explained? Yeah, because people are people and people say different things in different circumstances. And we tend to credit more what people say when they're under oath, when the stakes are very high and they could be prosecuted under penalty of perjury. But those are things that you would expect a defense lawyer, skilled, would get at. And some jurors might be thinking, well, okay, I have to discount some of the testimony of this person. Again, I'm not saying all of this actually carries the day, but it's a very, very, I'm trying, what I'm trying to do, what you and I are trying to do is paint for people the picture of what a trial looks like compared to a congressional hearing. And the relevance of that is all of that Imagining of what a trial looks like and how it will unfold is something that the Department of Justice is going to be thinking about deeply before they ever make a decision that will lead to trial.
1: It always looks so very easy when you're watching Law and Order. Right.
0: Especially the sound effects, so you know there's a new scene. <laughs> so, since we're on the topic of Cassidy Hutchinson, should we address the the relevance of of her and DOJ in the last week?
1: It's interesting to me that it was reported as news that she was cooperating with the Justice Department. Maybe there's a little bit of news in the fact that she's cooperating. But the, the point here that I think is important is that it would be malpractice if DOJ hadn't promptly got in touch with her after her, her testimony in front of the committee. There's been some reporting that DOJ was was taken by surprise. And look, that's fair. As a prosecutor, you don't know who all the witnesses sitting out there are until you bump into them one way or the other. But once she's identified, DOJ really has to be talking with her sooner rather than later.
0: Well, you know, I, I want to be generous and not unfair. But most of the time, in fact, almost all the time, pretty much all the time, DOJ does not have the benefit of, a, of an active aggressive congressional committee bringing to light who their witnesses might be in a high-stakes, important criminal investigation. So for people to suggest, well, DOJ really didn't know until this person was exposed as having inculpatory information against the president and others, when a congressional committee interviewed her and then put her on television, that's DOJ's job in the first instance, right?
1: So we all learn from our mistakes and hopefully... One thing that's happening at the Justice Department, I don't want to suggest that I have any knowledge about this because I don't, but hopefully one thing is that if you have an experience like that, then you do start thinking a little bit more broadly about who you need to be in touch
0: with. And then who's this other guy?
1: So, Ken Klukowski. This is a really interesting witness. The reporting is that a former DOJ staffer, Ken Klukowski, who worked with Jeffrey Clark, is now cooperating with DOJ. Of course, everybody knows Jeffrey Clark is the wannabe attorney general who was essentially willing to sell his soul and push the big lie and claim that there was fraud in the election at DOJ in order to take on the top job there. Here's one of the reasons Klukowski's cooperation is interesting to me. I mean, obviously, he can provide a lot of insight into what was going on at DOJ, if he's being completely honest. But there's also some reporting that he was in contact with John Eastman at the same time he was in touch with Jeffrey Clark. And we all know, because Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen told us it was so, that Jeffrey Clark was just an environmental lawyer. And so the notion that Clark could have actually authored this relatively sophisticated letter that came to light where he was pushing for state electors to gum up the process, this whole notion that the fake slates of electors could be used on January 6th to prevent certification of the election was always a little bit of a tough sell for me. I couldn't figure out how Clark with his background came up with that. Now we know. Ken Klukowski, who lists himself on his Federalist Society webpage and on his law firm's website, as someone with expertise in election law. So if his cooperation is, you know, truthful and and full, it could be very interesting in terms of where it heads. What what do you see with this, Preet?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And what I was going to say is, in the coming days and weeks, we're going to hear a lot of reporting, I imagine, as activity picks up about who the DOJ is looking at, who they're not looking at. And I'm just wondering, if you are at the Department of Justice and you know that there's a thousand people who have gone before the committee, what percentage of those people do you need to talk to? And as an initial matter, I would think you want to get all the transcripts even though you've only had an agreement to get 20 of them for now. But then there's going to be people that the committee may not have talked to that the department is going to want to talk to because Nobody is just 100% thorough. People fall through the cracks. Or for the committee purposes, maybe they didn't think someone was necessary to speak to. And the other question is going to be, what is the degree to which the Justice Department should seek testimony, or at least conversations with people who are very, very high up, who they don't expect to get a lot of cooperation from? Like, for example, maybe we can talk about him for a minute, Mike Pence himself. We've had all this discussion and debate And her testimony from his two top staffers, chief counsel and chief of staff, we kind of let go of the question about Mike Pence himself. He's a witness. He was a potential victim. Uh, He had conversations with the president. Those are very, very directly on point and relevant. What is the reason why you wouldn't want to try to talk to Mike Pence?
1: I would send him a grand jury subpoena if he wouldn't meet with me voluntarily. You might disagree with that. Look, I appreciate that there might be a legitimate scope of privilege in there, but I am a huge fan of the argument that the crime fraud exception trumps the privilege every time. You know, privilege, especially executive privilege, isn't meant to be absolute. And there are a lot of issues here that haven't been worked out yet. First off, there's the issue of who can uh, assert executive privilege. Joe Biden ain't asserting it here. And so that issue would have to be litigated and the Supreme Court left a small carve-out when it considered this issue last in the context of some of the cases about turning over documents, whether there's just some small residual area where a former president could assert executive privilege. So that has to be considered. Then there's this second issue of whether the privilege falls in the face of a great need for the information that's being sought. The courts have consistently held that it does. I don't think there's any reason to believe it wouldn't here. But but even if it didn't, then you would get to the notion of a crime fraud exception, maybe even other exceptions. But crime fraud sort of jumps out at you. And there's a question here that I don't know the answer to. The only time we've seen crime fraud applied, the judge used this civil standard. We've heard a lot about how this judge in California, Judge Carter, found that it was more likely than not that Trump and Eastman were involved in criminal activity and ordered the turnover of emails in that case on that basis. When you're in the middle of the criminal case and you're talking about whether the crime fraud exception Trump's executive privilege, my instinct is that you're still using the civil standard. You're not using the beyond a reasonable doubt standard that applies to the criminal conviction itself. I think to, to, you'll forgive me, Trump the privilege you've only got to prove more likely than not. And it seems to me that you could order Pence to testify based on any of those reasons, to say nothing of all the folks in the executive branch who've previously ducked direct testimony about their conversations with Trump by asserting executive privilege.
0: And as we also know, I hope by now, subpoenas issued by the Justice Department have more force and greater enforceability than subpoenas issued by Congress.
1: They are a lot easier to enforce, aren't they? There's also one other, you'll forgive me, because I think that I've started to use this term with some frequency, but Trump's bad lawyers, because it really expands just beyond the Kraken lawyers. But another one of the lawyers who was in Trump's orbit, whose name has started coming up in connection with some of the email traffic that was discussed last week. And this is Boris Epstein. It's very interesting that Epstein, who's managed to fly largely below the radar screen, I mean, his name has come up, but there hasn't been a lot of direct context. But he now has emerged as somebody who was in the middle of the fake elector scheme. He is getting, for instance, emails from this Phoenix lawyer, Jack Wilinchuk, who's the the lawyer who actually you know I, I want to say slipped up in emails but maybe he didn't slip up and actually referred to fake votes and, and fake electors in the context of the scheme and and so we've got Epstein who's in essence acting as a coordinator of people inside the Trump campaign he's talking with people in the White House he appears to have been in some level of contact with the president himself he's talking, With John Eastman. And at some point, folks like this end up usually in an investigation having to make a decision about whether they're a witness or a defendant, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think we're going to see, as I mentioned before, lots and lots of additional names, not just the ones we've heard before, which is also, by the way, kind of fascinating that 18 months past January 6th, and I guess, you know, 16 or 17 months past the second impeachment proceeding against Donald Trump, we're still learning new stuff and we're still learning about new players. It also brings into sharp relief just how inadequate and incomplete that second impeachment proceeding was.
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair. I mean, this is not chump change kind of stuff. It was Epstein who arranged for John Eastman to have access to the White House meeting on January 4, where Mike Pence was pressured with Trump in the room as well. And something that jumps out at me from this reporting is that the emails that Epstein is on were not shared with the White House counsel's office because they had already decided that the fake electors scheme wasn't legally sound. Epstein could be an interesting witness as to why that plan continued in circulation after that decision was made, or he could be a great co-defendant in in a case. And maybe that's something that's worth talking about, right? Do you think that If DOJ gets to a point where indictments are announced, will it be one big indictment naming all of these people at the same time? You know,
0: probably not, given how sprawling it is and given the stages of investigation as things normally unfold. It could be, you know, you could have something that indicts, you know, nobody, right? So that would be not a thing. That would be nothing, (laughs) I guess. Fair. You could have something that charges a number of people all at once because— you know, they get to the end and they, they want to wait to have everyone in there, including the top guy. Or they do it in phases, as they've been doing with the January 6th lower-level folks. Not only do they charge different people at different times, but we've seen they've charged a group of people with particular counts, and then they bring up what's called a superseding indictment, and they charge more substantial, more serious crimes like seditious conspiracy. So there's nothing that mandates that everyone has to be on the table in the same document at the same time at the end. And depending on how far they're getting, they can do it phase by phase. And one reason for doing things in phases, obviously, is depending on the nature of the person they think they have the goods on in any particular week in the future, if that person has not been persuaded to cooperate, sometimes bringing the indictment focuses the mind and gets people to cooperate. And and that's why you bring that indictment then, in part, to hold that person accountable, but also in part, to be a hammer on them to flip and give testimony against other people further up the food chain. So there's lots of reasons why you might want to do this in phases.
1: I think it's hard to indict the people that are most culpable in in this situation, whether that's Trump or, or other people, unless you've got testimony from folks who were directly communicating with them. Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is great as far as it goes. I'd like to know what the conversations between Trump and Mike Pence looked like.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's one challenge, by the way, that, you know, what you just said, brings up. And that is some of the conversations that took place between Donald Trump and others might be reflected in text messages. And we we now know more even than last week. No soup here. That there's some text messages that have gone, dare I say it, missing. Last week we talked about some Secret Service text messages, I guess a whole slew of Secret Service text messages that are being blamed on a device switch out. We can discuss whether that's credible or not. I think it's I think it's possible, but it sure stinks. And now we learn in the last number of days that the two highest people, the acting folks at the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, that many of their texts are gone too. And they were in communication with the president and communication with each other. And those text messages in the lead up to January 6th and the days before would likely shed a decent amount of contemporaneous light on what the hell was in the president's mind. What do you do about that?
1: Something that struck me when these stories first emerged with the erasure of secret service text messages was that the ineptitude of government when it comes to technological upgrades knows no bounds, right? I lived through a number of them. But as more and more of this stuff emerges, especially after January 6th, where you've got to believe that there was at least one person in the front office at DHS or the Secret Service who was smart enough to say, we need to preserve everything because this is going to be a major investigation. It almost starts to look to me, and this may be a little bit cynical, as though somebody said, maybe we can take advantage of these Previously scheduled events, this upgrade of Secret Service phones, or the fact that at the end of an administration, top leaders turn in their phones and they get recycled for the next group of folks that are coming in. It just defies belief that no one thought to put the brakes on what might have been routine in other circumstances to say, especially in light of the fact that four congressional committees had requested it, we need to make sure that we don't lose any of our data.
0: Yeah, because usually what's required is don't take an action, right? Normally it's the case, particularly with law enforcement devices, as far as I can recall, if you don't do anything, they don't go away, right? They remain in existence. And so when someone wants to do something nefarious, you have to go in and delete and you'll know you you'll leave signs behind that you did that and it was something that was untoward and or possibly illegal. You have... This confluence of circumstances, as you described, where there was otherwise, I think no one's disputing that there was otherwise a, a non-nefarious scheduling of a device switch out at the end of an administration. In this instance, it required nothing to allow things to be destroyed and deleted, which might have been in the interests of some folks. And what was required to do the right thing was the intervention, as opposed to the other circumstance, does that make any sense, as opposed to the other circumstance when an intervention was required to do something bad. And so, yeah, maybe people just sort of stuck their heads in the sand and said, you know, it's not my problem. I'm not going to go out of my way to preserve things that might be harmful. I I, we, I think it's impossible to know. And people should understand that you and I are just completely speculating.
1: Yeah, I think we are. And, and one of the first things that I would want to know if I was in Congress would be in connection with the Secret Service was what did the planning look like for this upgrade? Because those sorts of things are usually planned with a ridiculous amount of lead time. And so I would want to know if this was something that was quickly manufactured or something that was pre-scheduled. I would definitely want to rehearse how it happened that the decision about whether to upload information was left to each agent to make on their own with apparently no oversight. Lots of further investigation required here.
0: Just before we leave, Chad Wolf who was the former acting head of the DHS, it is interesting that, you know, I had forgotten that he had resigned five days after January 6th, and it said some negative things about the role that Donald Trump played in all this. So at least a year and a half ago, he wasn't necessarily a terrible witness for prosecutors or for the committee. And so how that intersects with the loss of his text messages is, is somewhat interesting. And by the way, You know, the text messages are often, or emails are often the best evidence because they're contemporaneous records that you can tell if they were altered or not. But people can also testify, right? And, you know, this was an acting cabinet secretary. The other one was a former attorney general of a state and deputy acting secretary. And they can testify about what the communications were and what their understanding was and what they did and what they said and what the president may have said to them. Not as good as having corroborating text messages, but truthful testimony is not nothing.
1: And some of these folks may have had reason for, for maintaining notes. They may have meant to write, do scholarly writing, or, or write a book after they left office. So it could be that they have personally some forms of documentation that are almost as good as those contemporaneous communications.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. The history has been, particularly with Donald Trump, that when he has conversations with people, sometimes because they're going to write a book, but but otherwise often because they don't trust what the former president is gonna say about the conversation, they take contemporaneous notes. I took notes based on the the couple of conversations I had with Donald Trump. We know that other people have recorded him or thought about recording him, that election official in Georgia. So it does stand to reason, whether it'll ever come to light or not, that many of these people, knowing what was going on, knowing that history was gonna take a look at this, and that posterity was going to be important, make a contemporaneous record outside of text messages as to what Donald Trump was saying. I think that's a, that's a great and important point. So as we have said, you know, often in the world, August is slow. I don't think it will be. I think you have the top reporters in every newspaper and media outlet in the country trying to follow the progress of DOJ. We had this great discussion last week. I know, Joyce, you listened to it on the Cafe Insider. Mm-hmm. this great discussion as part of my note with Carol Lenig, who talked about how during our friend Pat Fitzgerald's investigation of the leak of Valerie Plame's name back in the day, the investigation of Scooter Libby, that she was positioned in an interesting place in the courthouse so she could see who was coming and going out of the grand jury. The committee may be a little bit quieter as the Congress goes into recess and there'll be no August hearings unless there's a surprise like Cassidy Hutchinson was. So you never know. But DOJ is going to be very active.
1: I think that's fair. And I heard Carol say on television last night, she was asked a question and she said, I don't know the answer to that yet because I don't have grand jury subpoena powers. <laughs> and I had this momentary vision, you know, of Carol Lennig with the subpoena power. And I thought, wow, we would know everything tomorrow. But I don't think the press will be asleep. I think on, on three fronts now, there is full-on investigation.
0: So we'll keep an eye on it and try to explain it as best we can. We'll be back next Tuesday. Send us your questions to letters at cafe.com.
1: We look forward to answering them.
0: That's it for this week. Cafe Insider is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is Jake Kaplan. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is David Tatashore, Matthew Billy, Adam Waller, David Kurlander, Sam ozer Noah Azalai, Namita Shah, Claudia Hernandez, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the CAFE Insider community.